This is Y-Tune Shuffle. Y-Tune Shuffle. It's the music that informs our lives. The rules here are that there are no rules other than just bring in your music, mm. hit play. We and then we get co- to pick your brain about why those songs. It was the first girl I dated serious, and I was, it was and this uh, Stone Temple Pilots was at the same time we broke up. and But, but it was a cleansing thing because I went through a lot of changes. Welcome to Y-Tune Shuffle. A celebration of the music that inspires our lives. With your hosts, comedian and radio personality Maggie Mayfield. And Hollywood's secret weapon, David Earl Waterman. This is Y-Tune Shuffle. Welcome to the show. This is a little show we do called Y-Tune Shuffle. I'm your host, Maggie Mayfield. And with me, as always, the ever-lovely and talented Hollywood secret weapon, David Earl Waterman. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Oh, we're clap happy this morning. It's so good. And our very special guest, Marco Babineau. And the crowd roars. And you and David are very good friends. Can you tell me a little bit how you guys met? Is that an okay story to After tell? After you, Marco. Oh, sure. My wife, Lauren Dombrowski, was a stand-up comedian in Boston, and we met out here in L.A. Um, a handful of years ago, about 18 years ago. And I met Dave through Lauren and you know, a whole cast of funny people. So uh, it was uh, the first time I met Dave, I think we went to a show. He was doing an Im- improv show and he came running out on stage in these army fatigues and I just started laughing. He's got this physical <laughs> comedy. He had that giant jug head and I was just looking at him going, he didn't even have to speak. I was already laughing. So, I mean, that's Dave Waterman. So yeah. if you ever get to see him on stage, just be prepared to laugh a lot. Uh, Lauren Dombrowski, Marco's wife, uh-huh. uh, for clarity, uh, God rest her soul, you mm-hmm. know, was a, a huge support in my life, uh, not only creatively and professionally, but just on a human level. And uh, I remember she, she, she goes, we're all going to Six Flags. We're gonna, you're going to meet Marco. <laughs> You know, and, and I have, a, I don't remember, I was driving a 78 mustard yellow station wagon Ford yep. Volvo. And of course, Marco, you know, quite very successful man in the music business, all around yeah. real estate. Marco's a, he's a big deal here. He's willing to get into my 78 Volvo mustard yellow car to drive out to Six Flags. And Lauren loved roller coasters and stuff like that. And so Lauren and I decide when Marco gets in the car, I'm going to drive this thing purposely, like just one mile an hour for oh as long gosh. as we possibly can. <laughs> Don't say anything. And she just stayed stoned. And why does Marco getting a little bit more uncomfortable? But of course, you know, gets everything. And uh-huh. it's unshakable Marco back. So you share in the same sense of humor. Yeah. That's amazing. So yeah. did you grow up on the East Coast? Yes, I'm from Boston, Dorchester, to be specific. Really an unusual place to grow up. And everyone thinks of Southie, South Boston. But Dorchester was just south of Southie in and just as bad and growing up, I one of the fondest memories I have is when I was about 12, the doorbell rang one afternoon and I opened the door and these two young kids standing out there looking and said, oh, we'll come back when you're not home. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, welcome to Dorchester. You wow. Know, it was pretty rough growing up. Sports fan? I used to throw my shoes out on the ice at Bruins games and I'd come home. My mother would go, Mark, where are your shoes? And i go, I threw them out in the ice. She goes, you can't do that, honey. you got to bring a spare pair with you, you know, because <laughs> oh it'd be, gosh. you know, half a foot of snow and I'm in my socks. But, you know, we were crazy. Just diehard fans. Wait, you know? why do you throw your shoes on? Why is that? When the opposing team scored, you just. Anything. Throw anything. (laughs) That's like the old bra throwing. Yeah, well, kind of, but a shoe hurts a little more than a bra. 
Can you talk a little bit about your career, like how you got started? Because you've done some pretty amazing things. Yeah, I bought this cheesy drum set when I was about 17 and never played a song in its entirety. So (laughs) I was one of those jam kids. I'd get together with a guitar player and a bass player and we'd go to a cabin up in New Hampshire for a weekend and take a bunch of LSD and just jam for two days and come back and not remember what we did. And But I had aspirations. I, I wanted to be a drummer. And a friend of mine who worked at a, one of the distribution branches in Boston, this place, Music Merchants, he said, you know, you can get a job out there in the warehouse and there's 80 label reps that come that are independently distributed there that you can get to meet and maybe make a connection and get your band signed. Because, we, like I said, we had aspirations. We, we were never really going anywhere. So <laughs> took a, a job in the warehouse picking records, and within a year got hired to run this one-stop. And a one-stop, if you don't know out there, is a retail outlet that sells nothing but the top 100 selling records in Billboard. So they're kind of a wholesaler. Okay. So it sounds like yeah. Walmart before Walmart. Exactly. Yeah. All you'd sell is the big selling products. Mm-hmm. So you sell bulk. Right. That's what a one-stop is. So I did that for about a year, and Clive Davis at the time had left Columbia and started Arista Records. And he had this wild notion – Back then, the record companies had a head of promotion, they had a head of marketing, and a head of sales. And that was pretty much it. And then record companies hired local promo reps in every city. So the local promo rep in Boston, Richie Tarnico, was my best friend and bass player in a would-be band. Oh, wow. So all of a sudden, John Peisinger, who was the head of marketing in Arista, went to Clive and said, I want to try a local marketing rep because here's the deal. You had a promo guy going to radio stations, promoting a record. It got played, and hopefully it sold through retail. Well, there was no one working the retail side. So John Peisinger hired me as the first local marketing rep in America, and I worked out of Boston with my friend Richie. So I would go to these music stores, and I would put up poster displays through the store, give them a free box of records, and say, if you spin this record every hour— It'll help sell, and we saw sales right away. So, How old were you? Yeah. How old were you? I was like 18, oh. you know, 19, somewhere in there. And and the whole idea was, once again, just getting product in the stores and promoting it through retail. There was no one doing that on the retail side. So here I am in Boston. Arista hired me as a local marketing rep, and within a few months, we had released a few records. We released this band called New York Mary. It was a three-piece kind of jazz fusion rock band out of New York that went nowhere, but on the cover was a Harley Davidson. So I went to Harley Davidson. And I said, would you give me a few Harleys to give away in, in coordination with this record? We'll promote it. We'll put the bikes in the store windows. So I got three Harley Davidsons I put actually in the store windows for display, and we gave them away. The record never connected. The band went nowhere, <laughs> but we made a lot of noise. And the next record was the Kinks Sleepwalker album, which on the cover had Ray Davies and mime in face paint. So I put live mimes in every one of the store windows. This has never been done. I mean, you've heard about live models in Macy's windows over the years, but this is, we're talking back, it had to be 73. All um, Were these all your ideas? or was this, Yeah. Oh, wow. No, I just wanted to do something different. And uh, anyways, that record blew up and did really well. And what came to follow was a whole cast of character and bands I got to work with. But shortly thereafter, after about a year of doing that in Boston, Clive moved me to Chicago as a local promo rep. 
And I was a local promo rep for three weeks. Now, <laughs> I'd never been outside of Boston. I'm in Chicago, strange city, big city. And the music biz back then in Chicago was a really kind of a hub for a lot of that action. So I'm a local promo rep for three weeks. And they promoted me to a regional rock album artist development promotion kind of multi-coordinated position that any one of the bands through Arista that came through the Midwest region of America, I would just go and work with them, set up backstage, meet and greets, get the retail in there and radio to meet the bands. And that was also the beginning of meet and greets that have gone on over the years with uh, bands and record companies forever. And uh, it was just great being there at the beginning and you know, on Arista, we didn't have a huge rock roster. We had like Alan Parsons and, and the Kinks and Patti Smith, Bay City Rollers and, oh, wow, and yeah. the Outlaws <laughs> and a handful of other bands. But it was really fun because his Arista Records home in New York, their second hub was L.A. And I'm in Chicago in the middle of the country all by myself with a credit card, just <laughs> traveling with bands and having too good of a time. So that was in the Midwest till 78. And A&M came along. Harold Childs flew into Chicago and met me for dinner. And at the end of dinner, I said, so, Harold, when does the interview start? And he goes, oh, no, you got the gig. <laughs> you know, so it was really he was just trying to see what kind of person I was. And we had a delightful dinner and evening. But uh, I started working for A&M out of Chicago in 78. And uh, in 80, they moved me to, uh, well, once again, here I am in Chicago working for A&M Records, the home companies in L.A. And their satellite office is New York. And I'm sitting in the Midwest. But now um, national promotion, rock, artist relations, artist development, promo guy. I actually had business cards made up VP of fun because <laughs> all I did <laughs> is travel the country and hook up with these bands and put together these parties. And there was there was work involved, too. But someone had to coordinate all that. Right. And I kind of was right. wearing five, six hats at the time. My first week on the job, Radio and Records was the big publication mm -hmm. that advertised and promoted and marketed all the new releases. It was like Billboard for the Trades. And the five most added albums of the week were... Super Tramp Breakfast in America, oh, yeah. Outlandus Damore, Police's first album, Joe Jackson, I'm the Man, <sighs> Squeeze UK, Squeeze, and a fifth album. But those four were mine. So my first week in the job, I had four out of the five most added records in the country. Wow. So I was off and running. I was oh. on the road with Super Tramp, Styx, Peter Frampton, Joe Jackson, Police. So you'd say your life is uh, pretty uninteresting and dull, like there wasn't really a whole lot going on. <laughs> it was, you know, I have to tell you, every time I boarded a plane in first class and I sat there and I looked down at my torn jeans and T-shirt and everyone else's in suits, I thought, you know, life is pretty You're damn doing good. All right. Every day I woke up and I pretty much would say to myself, I'm one of the luckiest men on earth just because I got to live that life. Well, well you, you asked me about one of those records, what do you do? How do you, how do you attack this? How do you promote it? Yeah. That record for me was Joe Jackson, Beat Crazy, which was his third release. And Joe got this crazy notion that, uh, you know, after doing Look Sharp and then I'm the Man, which were both aggressive, punky, hard, hit-in-the-face rock records, he did Beat Crazy, which was this literally a beatnik kind of jazzy rock record and it was very off color for him but it was cool it was creative it was what it was and there was a competing magazine in the east coast out of the philly area called the hard report and bill hard called me and he goes 
how are you going to promote this record? And I said, I don't know. We'll, we'll get it played. He goes, you're never going to get this on a radio. You will not get this record on American radio. And I said, really? And he said, good luck. And I said, I'll make a bet with you. So what I decided to do is I locked myself in my office and I advertised that I wasn't going to come out of my office till American radio played the Joe Jackson beat crazy oh record. So you tw- sit in. So 21 days <laughs> later, I haven't showered. I'm in my office in a cot and I've got every week they're taking photos and doing full page ads and they actually have bumper stickers and you might see one on a car, usually an old Volkswagen uh-huh. around LA and it was a red and black sticker and it said free Marco ad Joe. Oh, wow. and uh, basically I was in the, my office for over three weeks. And on the end of the third week, we hit a hundred radio stations. And I remember my boss at the time was Charlie Minor, and he walked in my office and the phone was dangling off my desk and you heard someone saying, Marco, Marco. And I was, my head was on the desk. I was passed out asleep. And he said, that's it. It's over. Go home. But we broke that record. Wow. And I didn't know how else to do it because it was uncanny music. And the thing that really sucked about it is there were radio stations that intentionally didn't add it because they wanted me to stay in my office. And they finally did. But that was a day when you could get really creative and just do different things. What is insane to me about hearing your stories is I work in radio now where digital is so important. Social media is so important. So Mm -hmm. hearing that you were that creative with the mimes in the windows and sitting in your office for that long, there was no social media presence. None of this was videotaped. It's just all word of mouth and it's all the television telephone story game i would have been a legend yeah well let's talk music let's talk your music yeah let's get to the why between your tunes Mm -hmm. (sighs) (laughs) there's something happening here david's very excited right now ain't exactly clear his list me list there's a man with a gun (laughs) over there Telling me I, got I mean, is it not the most relevant song today? Because it was. Stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Buffalo Springfield. Hey. <clears throat> Where does this take you? Oh, big, big grin on your face. <laughs> it takes me a lot of places. Um, that is my favorite so- song of all time. Wow. If, if I had a desert island and they said, all right, here's your five albums. Now give me one song, you know, for what it's worth is it. I don't know why it just left an indelible mark on my soul. The reason it's in this list today is I'll never forget sitting down with Axl Rose. We had signed Guns N' Roses and the first album, Appetite for Destruction, had come out. And a lot of people don't know this, but that album took 52 weeks to break. And everyone thinks Guns N' Roses were an overnight sensation And Eddie Rosenblatt was the president of Geffen at the time. And every week we would get one radio station to add Welcome to the Jungle. And I'd go up to Eddie's office and I'd have my tail between my legs. And he'd go, how we do this week? And I said, well, we got one station. And he goes, keep at it. 52 weeks of almost getting one station a week. It was that slow. And on right around the turn of the first year, it just the gates opened up and everyone just welcomed them finally and they became this huge huge band so they're going to make their second album patience and i sat axel down and i said i know you're going to throw some covers in this album i said what do you think about 
doing for what it's worth, Buffalo Springfield, because you guys are very, you're not so political, but you're anti-war and you're very, you're a real topic out there because everyone thought, who is this weird band with this tattooed cat coming out, jumping around? <laughs> no one was making music like Guns N' Roses. These yeah, voice, these, his voice, my God. They were lethal. I mean, they really were. They would just take on a stage and when they opened for the Steel's Wheel Tour, I mean, they opened for uh, Rolling Stones, when they played the Coliseum in L.A., in the last song, Axel threw a nutty and quit the band and walked off stage. What? And the next day, the headline in the L.A. Times is Guns N' Roses break up, not Rolling Stones crush at the Coliseum. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the kind of band they were. They they got all the attention. So I said to Axel, I said, I think this would be a such an iconic song for you guys to cover. And he goes, well, all right, we'll think about it. And they never did it. And it's unfortunate because, like I said, it's my fave. But he decided to take this little song by Bob Dylan called Knocking on Heaven's Door. And, you know, <laughs> it's all history now. But I guess he did the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know. Do you remember the first time you heard it? It, it, yeah. it, it probably helped shape a lot of my political views, even still today. I just like the space it was coming from. I mean, Stephen Still's voice, I still think he's one of the best vocalists of all time. I don't know. That song just, I couldn't let it go. What were you like as a teenager during the time when this music was making its first initial political statement? <laughs> I mean, were you involved in the peace movement, protesting, civil rights, uh, busing? Was, what was He up was busy you? Showing, throwing shoes. I was involved <laughs> in um, selling LSD and, and creating love around Boston. Uh, <laughs> Through chemicals? <laughs> I, uh, I lived on Com Ave, and my roommate at the time was a Vietnam vet, and... That also weighed on me. Living what was his name? Uh, Dennis Yunson. So here was Dennis and I living in this two-bedroom flat right on Com Ave. And he came back from Vietnam a different guy, as my brother did and most people, because it was just it was, it was a war that should have never happened. But he brought a lot of paraphernalia back with him. He had a six-foot pipe, like a bong, that was made out of human bone. Whoa. And it was carved. It was a. It was beautiful. And he had all these uh, like opium and hash pipes and crazy. You know, it was back in the day when everyone was just getting high and having fun and buying fluorescent posters and black lights and burning incense and so. But my roommate and I, we used to get orange sunshine. What is that? Uh, orange sunshine is LSD. It okay. was one of the first. It was before uh, Purple Owsley. And actually, the gentleman who created Orange Sunshine just died three days ago at the age of 75. Oh, my gosh. And his name is escaping me right now, I'm sorry to say. But Orange Sunshine was the big LSD drug back in the day. My roommate and I used to take a flask of wine and throw about 15 hits in it and shake it up and walk from our apartment down to the Charles River, which was probably a good mile away. And we would drink it and sit on the edge of the water and watch the waves hallucinate to the point of we'd know how much to sell it for and how intense the trip was. Marketing research. But walking <laughs> from the apartment down to the river, we walked by rows and rows of three-story brownstones, which all college students sitting out in the stoops just hanging out. And as we walked down, we'd go, hit a wine, hit a wine. And, of course, everyone, no one said no. And by the time we came back from the river, everyone was tripping. And they were like, dude, what was that? How much? And <laughs> there was our sales. And we did that for a good while. Wow. It's wow. interesting. What, did you call that something, that concoction? Just one hell of a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Ready for song number two? Mm-hmm. Ooh. 
Ajá. Don Henley, The Boys of Summer. We signed Don in, I think, 1985 at Geffen Records, and he had one album out on Electra Records before that, and his song was the one about the 5 p.m. news, and it was uh, Dirty Laundry. Dirty Laundry, yeah. Great song. Mm-hmm. And we got Don, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what kind of record he was going to bring us, and it was called Building the Perfect Beast, and there were a lot of great songs on it. The Boys of Summer was the first single, you know, and it's about baseball. It's very American pastime, but I was in the studio when Don was mixing it, and he was just trying to come up with something different and unusual in it, and if you notice in the bridge and through the solo, there's this seagull sound, Mm -hmm. and it's this little kind of synthesized guitar and it sounds like seagulls and i thought how unusual is this but it really set a tone for that song i think it made that single stand out and it's like you know you hear a song with a whistle in it i don't think there's been many songs that have had whistling in it that weren't a hit record Hmm. like there's certain things that we hear that just help connect a song and I think this song, once again, it made that solo in the middle of it different. Did you get to see a lot of their creative process? Any of the bands that you worked with, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, because you just talked about being in the studio while he was mixing it and trying to come up with these sounds. A lot of bands I got close to in, in that arena. It must be really intense in that room when they're just trying to think and feel and like pull it out like it's in there somewhere. But what does it sound and feel like? Well, David Coverdale, who's the lead singer of Whitesnake, is also... Probably like Henley and like Steven Tyler, some of my closest friends in rock and roll, because they remained friends. Mm -hmm. Robbie Robertson is like that, too. I mean, these people just didn't go away. When the records were over and I stopped working with them, you never hear from them again. One Christmas morning at 8.30, I got a call. It was Henley wishing me a Merry Christmas. I thought, you know, that's sweet. You know, anyone that wants to take time out of the day, because... We're talking people that know millions of people. Right. And they got tons of people around them working them all the time. That whole process, I remember Coverdale bringing me into the Sunset Marquee in the basement. There's a recording studio there, and they were mixing down the big White Snake album. And they have the song that closes the album, Still of the Night. And I remember being in the studio, and he said, sit down in front of the board. And he put the speakers right in front of me, and he turned it up. And he stood on the other side and sang it at me as the song played, and I was just, I was moved beyond. A lot of those moments happened, I guess, in my life. When I worked at A&M on the lot, the thing that was amazing is on the lot was A&M Studios. I had worked there for probably six months, and at the end of every night, I would go over to Martin Kirkup's office, who was the head of artist development, and he would pour cognac, and we'd listen to British imports, and that was the first time I heard The Pretenders, and the mm. first time I heard Tattooed Love Boys, 
And that left an impression on me also because I'm in a pretend as tribute band today. And that's what motivated me to do this project. From that day, sitting in Martin's office, listening to that first Pretenders album. But I'll never forget one night he said to me, he goes, you know who's down in the studio tonight? And I said, no. And he goes, have you been in? I said, not really. He goes, oh, come on. So we went down the studio. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac was in Studio B. Tom Petty was in Studio A. And Santana was waiting to get in to see. This was just another night at A&M Studio. And I wow. go, oh, my God, this has been here all along. <sighs> Marco, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. You got Tom Petty, Savannah. But I, I got to just reverse a little bit. You're in a pretender's cover yeah, band. Yeah, what? <laughs> What's, well, now, I see your post on Facebook. I thought it was just a band you were in. I just thought no. you were playing out, doing covers. What's no, the we, name of it? Well, the, the difference is a cover band will play many songs from bands. A tribute band plays note for note. I had this idea a couple of years ago. I wanted. To, I had this great female singer, and we wanted to do uh, a band. And I said, I don't want to just be in another cover band. Let's do a tribute. And she said, huh, what do you think, Pat Benatar, Hart? And I'm going, yeah, yeah, that's been done. I said, how about Pretenders? Chrissy ah. Hine is very unusual. She's one of a kind. And she goes, cool. So we're called the Contenders. Nice. Uh, we contend to be the pretenders, and uh, people come to our show, and they will literally stand in front of us and go, it's them. It's them. I mean, we're that close. Wow. Yeah, she's an incredible talent, you know. You know her? Funny story. Lauren, God bless her soul, when she was alive, her favorite musical icon was Chrissy Hine. So I took her to the Greek to see the Pretenders. They were opening for Neil Young, and they put on a great show. And they closed, and she closed with Needle. Uh, was it Needle is done? The uh, she closed with a Neil Young song, and it was a brilliant night. And so we go back outside the green room, and I wasn't working the Pretenders, so I had no credentials. But you know, I'd been around, and we're standing there. And I said, "Let me let me try to get you back to say hi to Chrissy." She goes, "I I, I can't. No, you gotta understand. My wife had worked with." many greats. She was a mad TV executive producer. So she worked with celebrities for a living. Roseanne. Yeah. There was only two people on earth that could affect her. And it was Chrissy Hine and Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke. Wow. Dick Van Dyke yeah. was her all-time idol. And she got him on mad and got to work with him and mm -hmm. they became friends. And so here we are standing outside the green room and here comes Chrissy. She's Heading back, and Chrissy's always had the reputation of being a total bitch, and that's n <laughs> that's not hidden news. Everyone knows that, and she'd admit it. Mm -hmm. You know, when they played the forum three months ago, they opened for Stevie Nicks, and in the first song, she just twenty seconds into the first song, she starts yelling, "Put your phone down! Put your phone down! Everyone, put your phones down!" Because you go to concerts today, that's all you see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See a cell phones up. Everyone's recording. No one's watching. Mm -hmm. So she had some choice words for the audience at that point, but that's Chrissy. So here she comes walking along, and I'm like, Lauren, here she comes, here she comes. You got to say something. You got to say something. And she's walking by, and I'm like, oh, Lauren, come on. So Lauren yells, Chrissy, and she turns, she goes, I love you. <laughs> Chrissy looks at it and goes, ah, and walks in the green room. That was it. And Lauren looks at me and she goes, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I said, that was perfect. Oh, it's Lolo. Oh. Chrissy, I love you. I said, that oh, was perfect. You just geez. made her night. I, I would imagine. She smiled. That's great. Yeah. Lauren, 
mm-hmm. your wife's name. How did you meet her? On Thanksgiving, I throw a Thanksgiving dinner for a lot of the East Coast transplants, people that are out here that don't have family. Mm-hmm. And I was at a spiritual retreat in 97 up in East Dorset, Vermont. And I met this guy, Boston Pete up there, Pete Downing, who was this long-haired bass player. And we became friends rapidly. And he told me about the set of twins in Boston. And one of them was a stand-up comedian who was moving to L.A. in August of 97. And I said, oh, you got to introduce her to me because I'm single. I'd love to meet her. And he goes, yeah, okay, whatever, and was kind of forgotten about. Well, that Thanksgiving 97, Pete came with 15 other people, and he brought Lauren. And the funny thing is Lauren spent the whole day with my ex-wife and my daughter at the time, who was about four years old, and a handful of people. And I said barely three words to her all day. The only thing I remember saying, because I did all the cooking yeah, and cleaning. Say, you're very busy oh. on those parties. And I'm in the kitchen cleaning dishes, and Lauren came in with a handful of dishes, and she said, can I do anything for you? And I said, you know what you can do for me. And she said, real cute, and walked out. That's the only dialogue I had with her wow. the whole day. And like in Swingers, you know, the uncomfortable phone call where you leave way too much information and you can't take it back. Oh, to this day. (laughs) To this day. She did it to me that next day. She left a message. Hey, Marco, it's Lauren. And it was great meeting you. And I love your family and your friends. It's really cool. And and here's my number. If you ever want to go out and blah, 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 blah. And then she hung the phone up. And I know she was like, oh, why did I do that? So typical guy. I didn't call her for a week. No, I just thought i'll get around to it and i called her a week later and i said hey it's marco do you want to go out and she's like yeah okay so i remember picking her up that night and she <laughs> smacked me and i said what what's wrong and she goes you made me sit for a whole week waiting to hear from you you don't know my head was going crazy you know typical relationship mm. stuff and your relationship uh, started with a smack on the face yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> A wisecrack. But you know it was, what you can do it for me. But it was really funny because that night I was driving this little Mercedes convertible. I thought it was a little hot shot. It was when Mercedes first came up with that school bus yellow. That Formatic you drove. Oh, the Formatic. No. I remember that car. And and I, we went. Uh, she goes, what are we going to do? And I said, well, let's just go for a ride. So I took her. We drove up to Universal. And we went to the backstage VIP entrance. And that night, Jane's Addiction were playing. And. They're a Warner's act. I had no affiliation with them. Mm-hmm. But I just went up to the gate. I said, it's Marco Babineau, plus one. So the guy goes, hi, Marco. How you doing? He goes, you're not on the list here. And I go, well, come on, man. And he goes, all right, we'll just head back. You know you know the people at Warner's. I'm sure you can talk to them at the ticket window. So I, she's going, who are you? So <laughs> we pull up backstage, go to the window, and I said, hey, girls, it's Marco Babineau, plus one. And she goes, oh, Marco, I'm so sorry we don't have you down on the list. I said, well, grab someone from the band. He goes, no, never mind. Here's two passes. Just don't worry about it. So we get into the show, and she's like, who are you? I don't get this. So we walk back in, and the band's kind of getting ready to go on. They're starting to flash the lights in the in the hall, so it's like six minutes before showtime. So I said, let's take our seats. So we walk into the amphitheater, and the backstage door is off stage left, off to the side. And as you walk in, you have to walk kind of the perimeter through the middle of the auditorium to get down to your seats. And the house lights are still up. And as we're walking to our seats, people are yelling out, hey, Marco, Marco, hey, Marco. And she's going, Jesus Christ, what are you, the mayor of Hollywood? (laughs) And we sit down in our seats. And I remember saying to her, we're not going to watch a lot of the show. We're going to be making out most of the show. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, you really think so? Anyways, that was our first date, and uh, and it Hard was a to lot top of fun. That first date, I guess. 
<laughs> and I just remember taking it back to her place, and I walked in into her place, and she goes, oh, this is when you're going to make your moves now, right? Yeah, it's going to be all slick, and it's going to be Marco-like, right? And I looked at her and smiled, and she just pushed me out the door. She goes, call me, and <laughs> slammed the door on me. And that's when I realized I was going to have to earn this relationship. And yeah. uh yeah, one thing led to another. And like after about three dates, she said to me, she looked at me at one point, she goes, two years. And I said, what? She goes, you got two years. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you got two years to propose to me. And if you haven't by then, I'm moving on. And wow. two, two years to the date at her parents' house in, in Manchester, Mass, I proposed to her out on the rocks of the shore of the uh, the beach there in Manchester. And yeah, we got married and and had a, a glorious life, and unfortunately, cancer took her away, as it does so many people in our lives. But it was, if I could live it over again and have those 10 years with her, I would. You know, it was one of those things that people go, didn't you hate God? Didn't you Didn't you want to blame someone? I said, no, it was, it was just, it was her hand. Yeah. You know, it was her fate. But she was a character. She was larger than life, <laughs> you know, and we did a memorial for her at the Self-Realization Center on Sunset over by uh, PCH. And there must have been seven, 800 people there. And then we went back east to her family up in Maine. And there was another three, 400 people for a personal family memorial. And then I did a memorial for her horse friends in Burbank, where I live, because she had horses. And uh, I took Lacey, her horse, out with uh, 40 riders behind us. And we did a whole memorial in the park. And at uh, this friend of hers, Jeff Cobra, said some prayers. And as every rider went by, I gave them a handful of her ashes, and they got to spread her ashes mm. uh, out on the uh, trail. And so that's the kind of woman she was. I mean, she was honored even in death, above and beyond. I just hope when I go, someone <laughs> remembers me. We'll you know? play this episode. Yes. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Wow. Song number three? Sure. The boys are rocking out! <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I heard this song. I remember the very first time I heard this song. 71 Pontiac Le Mans. Oh, one of the best bands of all time. Oh, my God. These three guys made more noise than a symphony. Um, <laughs> you know, and you talk about unpretentious. These were three, just three guys that got together and made amazing music. I mean, Stuart Copeland, still today to me, is not only a world-class drummer, but just percussively, the things he did with a drum kit were so uncanny. I remember on their first tour, right before they go on, he had a bucket of ice water and he put on these thin black gloves and he'd soak them and squeeze them out and grab his sticks and I could see his legs already vibrate and he just couldn't wait to play. And like I said, his his drum rhythms were so bohemian and juxtaposed. He never played just straight rhythm. And you hear the reggae influence in their music with his little toms and his hi-hat splashes and some of the stuff he does. And then you got Andy Summers, who, like the edge in U2, totally underestimated guitar players because they don't play for the solo. They play for the 
fill of the sound of the music. And Andy Summers is one of those great guitar players that just created so many musical sounds and and nuances in their music that made it sound more than a three-piece band. Mm -hmm. And then you got Sting. I mean, come Mm -hmm. on. Sting was this bass-thumping punk who was like a pogo stick. He couldn't stand still. All he did is Mm -hmm. jump up and down. Sting is amazing. I just saw him do a talk at the Grammy Museum downtown, and it was like a private concert, so he did some acoustic stuff, but he was talking about the new album that he's got coming out. Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting about him is that he stays... So curious about music, and it feels like he's always looking for something new, a new instrument, a new idea, a new progression of chords, just something to like to play with. He just seems like the kind of guy that always wants to play. Yeah, and it's funny because his kids are musicians now, and you know, at one point he had two songs on KCSN's playlist, and his daughter's new record was getting outspun over him, <laughs> and uh, and you can hear the influence. You can hear the influence mm-hmm. of his 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 cadence and his his vocal quality and her music and and it's just uh it's great stuff and yeah he's a he's a real musician but he's mm-hmm. also an uh, a man of the arts you know beyond being well spoken and and kind of universally wise uh he's he's a man of the times mm-hmm. you know great guy and the three of them made incredible music but i was once again gifted when I was at A&M in Chicago, their first record came out right when I was moving to L.A. They came and toured right, you know, a few weeks in front of the release of the album. It was one of my last weeks in Chicago. We went up and toured Wisconsin, Illinois, and two or three states in that area. We did about 10 or 12 dates. And it was the three of them and me and Kim Turner, their tour manager, in a van. Just, oh, just the five of us. And driving gig to gig. They were playing in front of anywhere from 10 to 25 people a night. No one knew who they were. And they would electrify those few people in the crowd. The reason this song hits the list, too, is it's this is like moments in musical history. You never forget that next to you is their opening song. Now, you got to remember, they only had one album of music. Mm-hmm. So by the time they went through the whole album, they got called back for an encore. They weren't prepared for that, so they did Next to You again. Nice. So they figured anyone who came in late didn't hear it, so we'll play this song as the encore song and uh, till they got a bigger body of music put together. Number four? <sighs> okay. I had, this just makes me think of Mrs. Doubtfire. Is that terrible? <laughs> I, I had no idea where this was going to go in my life when I first heard this song. It was, it was interesting at first, and now it's a... <laughs> I want the background skinny on this song, for sure. Concerts never get old for you, do they? No, not really. But to to get my interest to go out to see someone, it's got to be uh-huh. someone exciting, yeah. uh, someone that brings a lot to the live show. Uh, but Aerosmith, I mean, come on. They are today the longest lived original five member piece band right. in rock and roll history. Right. There's not the Stones. No one else can say they have the original five members, which is uh. a, a real testament to themselves and 
Steven Tyler, I mean, when he did American Idol, I thought, good for you, dude. Yeah. Because he wasn't selling his career out. And I think he had some really positive musical critiques for a lot of these upcoming vocalists and prodigies. And uh, Did you watch that show outside of when he was on I was it? I was a massive fan. I loved the show. Oh. Uh, I, I, it's the only show, not to put the voice down, God bless him, but the whole turning the chairs around, hitting the button. I, I'm sorry. I liked American Idol because... They went into each city, and they found the strongest talent in those cities, good, bad, and different. And if you really were a fan of the show, you watched it. When they got down to when they finally came to Hollywood and you had the selected— 12 or 24 or whatever Well, you went from 60 to 40 to 20, and you got down to that 20. From that point on, it's game on. They were—if they weren't getting up at 6 a.m. and doing interviews or going somewhere to be photoshot or doing live video— They had to learn a song within 48 hours and get back in that stage and knock it out of the park and be better than the other 19 contestants. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, if you think of it, that's pressure that I don't know how anyone can handle. And the Adam Lamberts and all of those, the people that came up through that show, I mean, Carrie Underwood, one of the biggest, you know, Mm -hmm. country stars of all time was an American Idol winner. And Catherine McPhee came in second, I think, in season four. And she's in Scorpion now, I think, in its fourth or fifth season. She's been in a number of TV shows. Every show she goes out when she has time to sing. I've seen a couple of her live shows. She sells out every show. And she was a runner-up. She mm-hmm. she didn't even win. So that show is exposed so much talent. I think it's a real tribute to American Idol. And, and it was kind of sad to see it go away. But I think part of that was the judges would get more attention than the actual striving artists trying to break. And maybe that was part of Fox's dynamics, the way they just do their showbiz. But they've had some great judges on the show. And once again, some incredible talent. But uh, yeah, I thought American Idol was really valid. And, and Seacrest, God bless him. I mean, he drove that show. He was the mm-hmm. best hope. I mean, you talk about Dick Clark. I mean, yeah. he is Dick Clark. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, by yeah. far. And it proves in his career today, the guy just can't stop. Yeah. You know? Oh, and yeah. Everything he does is really good, though. And I got to spend time with Ryan. Not a lot, but in Stephen's dressing room a couple times after Idol. And talk about a down-to-earth guy. Just yeah. a sweet, sweet guy. Uh, but Tyler, oh, man, I just love that guy. God forbid... He walks into a Whole Foods or a Gelson's or a Vaughn's or Ralph's because he will talk to anyone. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. That's He's one great. of those guys that anytime you see Steven in public, there'll be like four or five people lining up behind just because they want to talk to him. And he won't walk away. He will stand there till no one's left. That's sweet. Wow. Why do you think that is? Honestly, I'd like to say it's just because he's such a super guy, but it's not. He's a blabbermouth. He can't stop himself. <laughs> That guy, that guy would talk. He would read the phone book if there was nothing else to do. I mean, that guy, he's just, hyper, hyper dude. Oh yeah, but I mean, once again, mad talented. Look at that band for everything they've gone through. Little breakups, this and that. The Toxic Twins, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. The dynamics that have gone on between them. You know, when I think of like Fleetwood Mac, they make a record called Rumors, and that was all about everyone having sex with each other in the band and all of the breakups that went through making that album. And then you got Aerosmith who are 
18, 19 albums in and they're still together. Good, bad, and different and still making rock and roll and still relevant. And the bridge to the whole hip-hop thing. I mean, we were talking about music before we started taping today and, you know, mm-hmm. just the different kind of incarnations. They were just, they were like instrumental. Yeah, Walk sort This of welcome, Way. Yeah. Uh, Run DMC was yeah. probably the first nationally exposed big rap song. And I love that Run DMC thought their the name of the band was Toys in the Attic. <laughs> but they, they they did. They were like, yeah, Where's know. this toys in the attic? Yeah, they right. the Dude looks like a lady. We had signed Aerosmith to Geffen Records. Now you got to understand through all their Columbia days, they were huge, and then they went away for a while, and they got into drugs and stuff. And Tim Collins, who was their now manager at, at that time, had went and got himself sober, and then put the whole band through treatment mm. and got the whole band sober and. That's something you can never take away from them. Tim affected their life, and Tim was their manager for the following 15 to 20 years, and they eventually parted ways. But their first album on Geffen was called Done With Mirrors. Yeah. And it was absolutely done with mirrors because they were kind of getting sober, kind of getting clean, kind of changing their life, but maybe not totally there yet. And Done With Mirrors kind of came and went. There was nothing significant on it. I used to see them in Revere Beach at the Beach Ball for 50 cents, you know. And I have a black and white Polaroid photo of the five of them when they were like 16 years old sitting around a picnic table in a cabin in New Hampshire. And every time I look at them, they look the same. They look Mm. a lot older, but it's the same five guys. It's truly – it's really a testament to Tyler and those guys, what they've done And I think it doesn't get pointed out enough, but when Dude Looks Like a Lady came out, it was uh, the second album, and it was Permanent Vacation, and that is by far my favorite album of theirs because the album was rich with songs, had a couple of big hits on it, but it was it was the turning point in their career because they had done their Toys in the Attics and uh, Done with Mirrors. Well, they had done big albums on Columbia. They were rock stars then, but to give them rebirth was hard. And drug addiction was a big part of that. And, you know, you ask me, what do you tell kids today? Well, what I would tell anyone is you have a choice. We always have a choice. And, you know, you can look at the glass half empty or half full. And I've just always been one of those people. I've always looked at the glass as half full because – One of my dearest friends used to say to me all the time that he goes, I'd rather walk on the sunny side of the street Mm. than in the shadows. And and you have that choice. All you have to do is walk across the street and get in the sun. And I believe that about drugs and alcohol, too, that if you're having a problem with it, there's people and places that can help you and can not necessarily fix you, but mend you and get you on the right road. And life is too short, folks. (laughs) Spoken from someone that's lived five lives. I just don't want to miss it. Mm. I don't want to miss the miracle. I want to catch this thing and enjoy it because there's there's a lot of good going on out there. And uh, that's a battle that we're going to see through our whole lifetime, though. Drug abuse. I mean, Chris Cornell was a dear friend of mine. He just passed away. How sad. I just saw him on, I think, The Tonight Show two weeks ago doing a brand new song. And here he is kicking off a Soundgarden reunion tour. Just played played a date and and died that night. I mean, I I don't know why. You know, I don't know what his skeletons really were. Who knows what's going on inside people? But life as precious has been my experience, 
I don't want to miss any of it. Mm-hmm. But dude looks like a lady, man. Mm-hmm. Tyler, you know, he's never been a cross-dresser, but he had no problem getting dressed up as a woman. I love it. Because that guy is just, he's just super, he's wild. He's a wild child, man. Yeah. And and it was just like, um, he's one of a kind. That's all I can say. And he's multifaceted and multi-talented. And I'm so grateful that he's been in my life. Song wow. number five. This is it. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. No. Marco. Big chorus coming up. Yeah. Yeah, 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 here it is. I love that a woman is singing this song. Here it is. There's that. There's that hook. Here we go. Here it is. Oh, finally. Patty Smith. Holy God. <laughs> That's her version of Gloria. Uh, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> First album, Horses. This is when I was still a local marketing rep in Boston, so it had to be 74. She kind of came on gangbusters uh, out of the punk world and breaking out of New York, obviously. And Lenny Kay was her guitar player and boyfriend, and they were really the Sid and Nancy of my era. And uh, extremely edgy, but controversial. Yeah, this album hit. Clive Davis was really proud to sign her, and it was uh, one of his biggest signings at Arista Records. I mean, he had Barry Manilow and Melissa Manchester and a bunch of pop stars, but um, Patti Smith was really his, uh, he had a lot of uh, rock time invested in her. And as we know now, she's still relevant today. I mean, she's kind of a female Dylan. My experience with Patti, I was doing in stores was brand new, where we get artists to come and sign autographs and just show up at an in-store. And she was playing Paul's Mall, which was a nightclub right there on Boylston Street in Boston. (laughs) And Strawberry's Records was a brand new record chain that had giant stores, and they were really opening the door to retail at that time. So we set up an in-store party for Patti Smith in the middle of the afternoon, the day of their gig. I think it was noon. I showed up at a hotel to pick her up at around 11 o'clock, and I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I keep telling the driver, go go call a room again, call a room again. And he finally came back at like five minutes of noon. He goes, I think she's asleep again. <laughs> like, oh, my God. So I ran in the hotel and went up and just pounded on a door, and she finally came to the door like kind of half-dressed and disheveled. She goes, what is it, man? And I said, you have an in-store in three minutes, and you're going to have a lot of people waiting to say hello to you. 
And she goes, oh, shit, Lenny, come on. So they both kind of threw their clothes on together. And, and I mean, everything but gum wrap is stuck in the hair, you know, just <laughs> just a mess. And they they kind of poured themselves into the limo. What do we got here to drink? And, you know, put together a couple drinks. And we got the strawberries. And she's not in a good mood. And uh, this kind of echoing Chrissy Hine a little at this point. And so we get out of the car and we go in and people are screaming. There's 400 people there. And she kind of shuffles her way up onto this little podium in the stage and looks at the crowd. And she's <laughs> she's miserable. And everyone's yelling and start chanting her name, Patty, Patty, Patty. And uh, she reaches down the pants and pulls out a Kotex and goes, <laughs> and I'm on the rag. And she... <laughs> Roses out into the audience. And it reminded me of the days when Iggy Pop would spit out in the crowd yeah. and people would try to get it on themselves. And I'd be like, I'd be ducking. What's wrong with you? People were jumping up like trying to catch the bouquet at a wedding. You know? Oh, my God. But that was that was Patti Smith, man. I mean, that, that, she was that, that, that world. I've always questioned whether human beings are supposed to be that acknowledged and how one maintains their composure is always going to be the the unknown variable. It's like right. I got so much attention on me, and to be influenced to do that or piss on someone like the right. The well, I, I I think outrageousness was part of the plan, yeah. you know, and that kind of spontaneous. Just I'm going to do whatever I do, and you're going to like it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seemed to work a lot of times, and you know, it was just a pleasure to get to work with her, and once again, watch her career unfold and. She ended up covering a Springsteen song and had a huge hit with it. And, you know, and it's all history now. But what's it like having a conversation with someone after they pull a codex out of their pants? <laughs> uh, do you, you need have... anything else? Yeah. Uh, here's a wet towel. <laughs> yeah, right. Do you need another one? <laughs> Move on. Next yeah. thing. Do the next right thing. Oh. But, you know, guys, uh, I have to tell you, thank you for having me here. And it was really hard, Dave, when you called me and asked me to come up with five songs because i could give you another five right i've now. seen your music collection it's like three walls three full walls wow. at but, least but it's all the experiences of getting to work with these bands and a lot of times it was those private personal moments too either backstage or away from the maddening crowd where you were sitting with one of the many artists i got to work with and talk to them. We're not done with not you even, yet. Not even not close. Not even close. There's, <laughs> okay. there's more to come. Before we get to David's segment, which kind of gives us all like a mental break, it's a fun little game, we're encouraging our listeners to email in with a story and a song of their own, so that way we can showcase some of our fans' songs as well. So if you want to do that, you can just personal message us through our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Shuffle. Uh, this, this is a little contest we do. Uh, it's called Band Name or Bar Name. And you might be a ringer with this. However, okay. the way this thing kind of keeps going is that the previous guest gives us a city somewhere in the world that I have to research and then find three bar names and three band names. And you got to tell me which is which. Mm. The guest prior to you, our last guest season one, was Ian Bag, a comedian who travels globally. And he was on his way to Rechjanovic, Iceland. Oh, is the, Rechnevik or something. Rechnevik, Iceland. Yeah. Oh, my okay. God. And so um, these, are, these are three. <laughs> he's got his mucklucks on. Yeah, these are. I've got six different names here. You're going to tell me which is which. Okay, so we're going to start out. It, says, it looks like uh, Kathy Baron. Is that um, a bar name or a band name? I say band. I say bar. Kathy Barron? 
Well, it's like the Baron of Coffee. That goes to Maggie. It it actually is a bar because you know with a K A F F I cafe. That's sort of the oh. the clo- yeah. So cafe cafe Baron is the translation, and it is. There's it, no coffee in here. It, it's a cafe that serves wine and beer, and it's right there in Rockjuvik. If you're in Iceland and you want to stop and get, can't wait something. to go. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Sigor Rios. Sigor Rios. Is that a band name or a bar name? Out of that's a band. Band. It is Sigor Rios. And yeah. They are the nice job, man. Samurais. Samurais. Bar name or band name? Band. I say bar. I know where your head's at, Marco, today, and it's really not in the music zone. That is actually, Samarias is a band name. Yes. It is a band name. Yeah. <laughs> Nailing it today. This one really got me because I sometimes cover up on the screen with my hand what it is. And this one threw me. Listen very carefully. Kex Hostel. Kex Hostel. I just like seeing you struggle to pronounce these things. I'm not, I don't, I, yeah, I really didn't do my homework with the, on many levels. But Kex the pronoun- Hostel. Kex I'm Hostel. Saying, I'm saying a bar. Bar. It is a bar. A hostel is a yeah. hostel where people hang out. That might be an easy one. This might be a little hard. Mum. Mum. Mum's the word. Mum. Bar name or band name? Mum. What? I wish I knew what that meant in Icelandic because it probably means something. I bet you it's a band. Where mum? <laughs> I say bar. It's a band. <laughs> it is a band. Maggie, you're killing me. This, this is a hard game. You know, and I don't have to do three and three, and I'm realizing that I could do five bars. I could do five yeah. bands. There's a lot of different ways to do this. Last one, Slip Baron. Slip Baron. Is that oh. a bar name or a band name? Slip Baron. I think that's the bar that Slipknot came out of. Well, so Slipknot was what came out Yeah. You, yeah. Ab- you finally got one, Marco. That yeah! is a bar. It's Slip Baron. <laughs> Uh, we don't have cash or prizes yet, but eventually this may turn into just that. Your favorite charity. We can, you know, <laughs> donate a buck or two, I think. So, Marco, next week, what's the uh, city in the world that we should be researching for bar name or band name? Johannesburg. South Africa. Mm-hmm. South Africa. Hey, y'all, have the word. Have you heard the word? Johannesburg. Remember that jam? Yeah. Gil, Gil Scott Heron. <laughs> Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> South Africa. This is getting better and better all the time. Pretty great. Bar name, bad name. That's it for this week. Have you been? <clears throat> no, I haven't. I've I've traveled a lot. My first wife was a stewardess, so we uh, used to literally take weekends and go to Paris or, or go to England or, or go to Hong Kong. Or, well, that's yeah, fun. we just traveled our butts off. Had a lot of fun. It's clear that you're a rock guy. You're into to rock and roll. Flash forward to 2017. What is your guilty pleasure? What are you listening to that if your friends found out? You'd be like, oh, man, don't make fun of me. A little That's surprise. Good. Oh, boy. Like, I'm um, a big country music gal. I could listen to country all day, but I, I love me some Justin Bieber. You know, it's funny you say that because I've never been a fan. I was in this salon the other day, and three songs came on, and they were all Justin Bieber songs, and they were all totally different. And I was like, this cat is really talented. There you right. go. There you go. I, it really blew my mind. I was mm-hmm. like, damn, I got to give him props. Mad yeah. props. Yeah. I like New Republic. You know, cool. I, I, you know, I never was really huge on boy bands at all, except for Backstreet Boys, I yes. thought made some great music. Uh-huh. I mean, their harmonies and their choruses were yeah, it could melt ice. I like, thought it was way cool better stuff. than NSYNC. Yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> NSYNC did a couple of real good ones, too. But uh, when you talk guilty pleasures, my favorite body of music of everything is West Side Story, the soundtrack. <gasps> wow. You know? Sharks my, or Jets? That, 
Oh, you don't I'm, have to answer that. I'm a shark. <laughs> oh, of course, Sharky. Sharky, yeah. that's a nickname for our friend Marco. Is Sharky, really? yes, yeah. it is. Don, right. Don Henley gave me that. Marco, thinking back in time, what was your very first concert ever in your life? And what's the, what was that day like? Uh, like? Uh, sophomore in high school, and I went and saw Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sherry. You know? Sherry, yeah, uh, and it's funny because I think I went from the Four Seasons to Zeppelin, or, or you know, then it was rock and roll days. It was mm-hmm. like the only kind of pop experience because I literally went from that to two weeks later, starting to go to the tea party and seeing all those psychedelic, the whole British invasion. Well, who took yeah. you to the Frankie Belly? Just a bunch of friends? Yeah, it was just yeah. Someone bought a handful of tickets, and mm-hmm. we all grabbed dates and went. And it was in a high school gym. It's like going to see Jersey Boys now. I'm sure it's, it's the same funny thing. though the, the tail end of that genre, right into the sort of boom, 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 ba, ba, boom. Oh like my god! Huge yeah. jump. Yeah, it was just great times and great days to be exposed to all of that music, and I think that's why music is still in my life and always will be because you know, growing up through that, it just became part of the fiber. What's your corner of the internet? How do we find you? Oh, uh, you can find me through marcobabino at gmail dot com. Very readily. You are, you <laughs> yeah. are not, not a tweeter, not a... F- oh, no. I'm yeah, I'm social media savvy. Uh, I'm, I'm everywhere there, too. You can tweet me. You can link me in. You can do whatever you want to do. All right. I'm, I'll, I'm link, I'll link it up in the, in the blog post. There you go. Marco, you've been incredible. Thank you so much for spending the day with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Marco. Dave, great to see you. Always. Always.